for a few weeks in early spring, the only sounds that I heard were those of songbirds and sirens. The country battled to protect the NHS, save the lives of people struggling to breathe. The world was being forced to stop, pause and let the planet draw a collective breath. I'm Ros Miller, a mid-career medic who found herself disillusioned about healthcare in the UK long before the lockdown of 2020. Songbirds and Sirens is for anyone interested in the biggest challenges medics face today. How to practice the basic tenets of being a good doctor, simply caring for people safely, while simultaneously delivering the latest medical advances in a world of rapidly changing technology and instant gratification. From the highlands of Scotland to the hidden doors of Harley Street, I have found two consistent things. One, medics don't wake up in the morning thinking, today I'm going to do a bad job. Exactly the opposite, we want to help people, to have the time to care for our patients and to do our very best for them. And number two, patients, regardless of whether they are down and out or a dame, all crave exactly the same things, to be seen, to be heard, and to know that for a moment in time, at least someone cares. Songbirds and Sirens is the start of a conversation society needs to have with itself. For me, it's the chance to catch up with colleagues and some friends to find out how the last few months have changed their perspectives and influenced their values. Chris Pierce is the first person I contacted when I realised that coronavirus was going to land in the UK. For the last decade, our careers have pretty much paralleled each other. In this first episode, we caught up on what life has been like for him as a foot and ankle surgeon in Asia and the changes that have resulted to his practice because of COVID. And so the experience in Singapore of COVID is very different to what we've had in in the UK principally. Um, And I remember phoning you um, as COVID was literally about to hit us and saying, what what do we need to do? Um, And I remember you vividly saying, well, you know, you'd you'd been through all of this with SARS or Singapore had been through this with SARS. Um, So kind of how did how did you get ready for COVID coming? And then what impact did it have on your immediate practice and the way that you were working day to day, you know, sort of at the beginning? So back to uh, for you, it must have been around about January, February time. Yeah. So January. Yeah. The um, so, yeah, what you say about SARS is very true, like Singapore was hit very hard by SARS and and, um, and Hong Kong also. Um, and quite a, certainly one of the things about SARS was that quite a lot of healthcare professionals died of SARS in Singapore. So so the hospital that I work in now, uh, you know, one of the hospitals anyway, is is, um, is called Ung Teng Fong Hospital in Jurong, and that was built about four years ago. So it was actually purpose-built for something like this. Uh, you know, there's there's a whole isolation wing. Uh, almost all of the doors are non-touch. You know that those kinds of things, and and, and the, there's positive pressure rooms and negative pressure rooms and all these sorts of things. So um, it's uh, you know it was set up specifically for this kind of thing. Um, and Singapore again had 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 a you know experience of a of a pandemic which which was quite bad. So they were very quick to to put things in place to prevent the spread. So actually the first wave here uh, was dealt with extremely quickly. Um, and at that time, I don't think, you know, that was early January, actually, we had our first case here and it did spread in the community, but they, they managed to shut that down very quickly with contact tracing, um, 
and you know isolating people and things like that. Um, but then, of course, as the situation got a lot worse, especially in the US and the UK um, and other parts of Europe, um, and borders were starting to be shut, then, of course, they brought uh, Singapore, most of the Singaporeans, especially students who were studying in the UK or the US or you know, uh, people that were living there that, that weren't staying there indefinitely all came back to the UK and a lot of those patients tested positive. Um, so that was the second wave, which again, you know, the, the, the Singapore government were amazing, really. that they, they basically hired out hotels. So all those people that came back spent two weeks in a five-star hotel, um, you know, courtesy of the government to, to keep them isolated. So, so really that, 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 that did a great job. Um, but of course, the border with with uh, Malaysia is, you know, there's I can't remember how many, but there's thousands of people a day that that travel across that border when it's open. So we did get the second wave, um, and then really you might call it the third wave, which is what we're really dealing with now. Is the foreign workers they call them here foreign workers, the construction workers mostly from the Indian subcontinent, so India or Bangladesh, but some from Thailand and China and other places. Um, a lot of them live in dormitories um, where they're fairly closely packed and some 12 to 20 men in a, in a single room in bunk beds. And so, of course, one, when one or two of the patients or the, those workers get the uh, COVID, then it spread very quickly. So as of today, I think we've got about 33,500 confirmed COVID cases that we've had in Singapore and 99% of those are in the dormitories. And what practically have you actually been doing? What has, what's your day-to-day routine been? So, uh, you know, a couple of months ago, we basically stopped almost all elective work. Um, we um, initially were going down to help out in the emergency department. Um, they built three tents They've, they've built it in three stages, these fever tents outside, you know, to deal with the huge numbers of cases. Um, so we started doing that. And then more recently, we've been actually going into the dormitories. Um, so I go to the dormitories about three times a week. Uh, we, we My own team services uh, two dormitories um, that have about 5,000 men in each. And, and we, have a, we have a tent outside the dormitory and we... And we We'll see anybody that presents with well any, any kind of symptoms because the dormitories have now been locked down, so they you know they're they're now quarantined in the dormitory. So, so we have a, a medical uh, team there, and we, we will deal with whatever medical issues that they have. Um, of course, if, if if somebody's ill, we'll send them to hospital. But if um, if they just need a repeat prescription for diabetic medicine or something, we can sort that out. Um, but then, of course, also if they present with any sort of upper respiratory or respiratory tract infection signs or symptoms, then we will swab them. Um, and uh, if they're positive, they get they get moved out to isolation facilities. Um, yeah, that, well, in fact, they get moved out anyway that day. And then, and then so they, they've built, Singapore has built lots and lots of um, isolation facilities for people, for, for, for infected workers, basically. And so what um, surgery are you actually doing? What operating are you doing? So at the moment, only um, only really trauma or, you know, emergency cases. So we, we've, you know, trauma, we, 
obviously carries on. Um, cancer work carries on. Um, initially, sort of up until, uh, when was it? Up until April, we were able to do sort of urgent cases. So like a high ankle sprain, for example. I you know, had a, had a young, youngish guy who had a high ankle sprain and I said, I can't wait till August to be dealt with you know, a bad high ankle sprain. Um, but those, those have to be vetted by the operating theatre committee, those kinds of cases. Um, but we still do have the odd list running for, for those. But it's mostly just trauma um, and, um, and, and cancer work at the moment. Um, and this week, I'm actually on the contaminated team. Um, so I'm not going to the dormitories, but I'm basically seeing any patient that comes into the hospital who... Uh, is either suspected of COVID or has COVID, who has an orthopedic issue, then I, I am the person that sees them with an NSHO. Um, so yesterday I did a guy who slashed his forearm and had to repair some tendons in the forearm, which is you know, not, not an area of anatomy I've been to all that recently, but yeah, it wasn't too bad. And um, how do you... Uh, so you're not doing any elective activity really to, per se. So I, again, so basically I have, I have one foot and ankle clinic a week on a Wednesday morning now, and I have one fracture clinic equivalent on the Wednesday afternoon, but the rest of the days I am freed up to go to the dormitories or, or, or whatever, you know, there, there's um, one of those isolation facilities I was telling about. There's a, there's a huge, um, shopping center that closed down a few months ago that's connected to my hospital by a, by a walk, walk bridge so they're now in the process of converting that to a three and a half thousand bedded isolation facility for patients who've got covid but are not particularly ill um but of course they need medics to to, to check on them daily so um so we're, that, that's obviously going to be mostly down to my hospital so i might i don't know if i'm going to be going there or or not and do you have any indication or idea when you might restart with elective? Yeah, so hopefully um, in July. Yeah, sorry, the other thing I mentioned is that we one of the things that they did very early on was to stop cross-institutional movement. Okay. So when I said that I was ahead of foot and ankle in three different hospitals, I, mean, I had to stay in one as of February okay. or late January, early February. So I haven't been to NUH at all since then because um, we, we're not allowed to do any sort of cross-institutional movement so and, um, and I assume that means social you don't get to socialize with any of your colleagues from those institutions apart from ones no, no, when, well, they, the, the social distancing includes not having lunch with anybody you know um, okay so that's, but that's a national thing that's not necessarily the the hospital you know they've, they've for the last two months basically it's, it's the stay-at-home thing you can only go out for emergencies or to go shopping for groceries all the restaurants and bars are shut uh, all the schools have been shut for that long homeschooling for the kids um yeah and is that similar to when they had the SARS and the MERS or is it just it's it's very different it's much more organized now is it yeah well I wasn't actually in Singapore for SARS I uh, actually I remember when I was living in England but I went to the I went to the Hong Kong sevens during the SARS. I remember like uh, leaving London when they said that the government doesn't, there's no advisory against going to Hong Kong. And then as I landed in Hong Kong, there was, 
you know, as I turned my phone on, it said, uh, you know, the government advises against any un- non-essential travel to Hong Kong. I was like, oh, great. You know. um, <laughs> From there. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, but I still went to the sevens. Um, yeah. Probably wasn't a very good idea in retrospect, but anyway, luckily I was okay. Um, yeah, so I, I'm not, I, I, I have, I mean, from what I'm told, I think it took a lot longer for for the SARS response here because it was something that had never happened before. Whereas this time, they had the experience from SARS, so they're very quick to to especially the contact tracing. You know, with something that Singapore did better than most places, I think, um, and isolating. You know, and it's you know you you don't you, you don't break the rules in Singapore really if you can help it. So you know the um, the, the the you know the stay at home notice that they say if you came back from UK or US or whatever you had to stay at home for two weeks um, and uh, yeah you better have to do what you're told basically. Next time, Chris and I discuss the practicalities of clearing the backlog of surgeries cancelled during COVID. In a career that spans a decade as a consultant orthopaedic surgeon, working both in the National Health Service and the private sector, I've had the privilege of meeting and treating fascinating individuals from all walks of life, from single mums and factory workers to actors, business leaders and politicians, with the occasional lord and lady along the way. This moment in time has brought fear, but also hope, and most importantly, an intense desire for change. It's up to society, not politicians, not governing bodies and not the media to decide what our collective future should be. You can follow Songbirds and Sirens via Facebook, Twitter or on Instagram. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. If you would like to find out more or if you would like to contribute to the conversation, please get in touch. <laughs>